Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Charles, this is a momentous episode for us. It is. I'm very excited. This is the big 5-0. 50th show. It's extraordinary. What do you get someone on their 50th wedding anniversary? Do you know? I actually, I have no idea. I don't, it's not, Diamond, I think, is 60th? I don't know. The first is paper and then wood. I mean, it's all nonsense, of course, but I just thought of it. Maybe for the 50th anniversary, you produce your partner or podcast. Oh yeah, that is the traditional 50th anniversary. So yeah. So this is entirely appropriate. 50 episodes deep. It has been quite a journey over the last, what, two years and change? Yeah, it also marks just about our two-year anniversaries producing Switched on Pop. I've learned more doing this show than just about any other aspect of my musical career, <laughs> uh, in, including seven years of graduate school in historical musicology. So I hope we can keep doing this for a long, long time. I'm with you. But I wanted to take this opportunity to step back and get a little little meta on us, kind of have an out-of-body experience, as it were. I'm never afraid to go there. And talk about what we do in a more kind of macro sense each week, maybe divulge some of our secrets, go go inside the fruit roll-up factory and uh, and see how the the musical sausage gets made. Let's call this one, How to Listen to Music in Four Easy Steps. That's great. All right. I'm excited to do this with you. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And today on our 50th episode, we reveal the Switched on method. How we listen to music. Not the way to listen to music by any means. Millions of ways to listen to music. Upside down. Yes. Underwater. In a plane. Inside out. Yeah, of course. The primary way I listen to music is on a subway through iPhone headphones interrupted by the cries of conductors and various uh, mechanical failures. <laughs> uh, however you listen to music is totally fine yeah, and, yeah. And, and great. And not that we all listen to music the same way. Right. 
right? Not that I hear the same thing that you hear, right? And definitely not that we hear the same thing as I don't know, a Mongolian yak farmer or <laughs> an 18th century Viennese composer like uh, Ludwig von Beethoven. Right. We all hear differently, but this is nevertheless our switched on method of listening. It consists of four steps. And let's just go through those together, Charlie. We've given them names reflective of uh, our favorite medium of listening to music, the record player. Yes, yes. Let's use the metaphor of the record to kind of take us through the four steps of this listening, beginning with the liner notes. The uh, text on the back of an LP that tells you what it's about and who's on it and when and, and where and what is made. And then we'll follow that with dropping of the needle. Yeah. So we'll just listen to the record. Just listen. Yeah. And then we'll follow that up with uh, scratching. A little, a little record scratch. That moment in the song when you go, whoa, stop right there. I got to hear that again. Scratch back. Yeah, scratch it back. And then finally, the remix. Ah, making it your own. Yes. Exactly. Four steps of listening and in order to to illustrate and take us through this method, I thought we should use a song that can sort of perfectly exemplify how you might go about doing this. Great. Uh, there's there's one that seems unavoidable at the moment, yeah. given that its uh, composer passed away just a few weeks ago, this November 2016. Yeah. It would be Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. I'm so glad you chose that. I think it's a really great choice. And many listeners have written in and said, hey, you, you've got to talk about Hallelujah. So this is Yeah, great. and it's kind of, in, in some ways, a song about songwriting. So anyway, we'll come back to that. Let's take Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah and apply these four steps to it. So see what we can uncover, how we listen to Hallelujah, given this method. And the first, again, is liner notes. Yes. So this is sort of looking at the big overarching structure of what's going on. What's their instrumentation? Who's playing what? In the classical realm, it might even say what key it's going to be in and what speed it's played at these sort of big meta structural elements of the song. Yes, and, and what we also might call very uh, objective information about the song. Maybe what in art would be called the tombstone <laughs> info. Huh, yeah. The who, what, where, when. Right. That is all present on the liner notes of an album or on the little circular decal that is in the center of the record. This tells you what is going on in a very basic sense. And so let's apply the liner notes to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Uh, this song, let's see, we've got a date, right? 1984. And instrumentation is drums, bass, guitar, synthesizers, gospel, choir. going on here so we definitely want to establish all that we want to maybe say the key which is c major uh the people's key yes the people's key and the time signature which is uniquely in 12 8 oh interesting yeah precisely so these are just some of the things that you might want to identify 
in this initial liner note stage before you really get into it. Mm. Um, you can also think about the genre of the piece. Though mm. this one is very hard to identify. <laughs> like, what genre is this it's song like in? Alt rock folk crossover. <laughs> okay, that works. Yeah. So these are what you first want to establish, right? Just the bare facts of the song, right? The, the, the things that can are indisputable. Why do you think this is important? Because frankly, all the information you just shared with me is kind of boring and could describe a lot of other songs. Right, and that's why it's step one, I think. If that's all you did and then walked away from this song, that would not, I think, be a very satisfying listen. I feel like it primes our listening. Yeah, that's very well said. This is like the foundation on which you erect your listening (laughs) experience. Well, I think erect is an interesting word to use considering the sexual metaphors throughout the song. Let's say, uh, let's, let's say <laughs> install then, or, or built. Great. I'm still working off the tryptophan here, Charlie, <laughs> so I might not always make the best choice of words today. <laughs> okay, so we establish what is going on on a very basic level in this song, yeah. and then we move to the next level of listening. That is something we're just going to call dropping the needle. And then you hit playback. Exactly. And this is, in some ways, I think the most fun step because this is just listening. listening to the song i don't you know i don't know what else to say you just listen to it over and over again yeah and you experience it in different ways i think as you listen sometimes you listen with your right brain and sometimes you listen with your left sometimes you're listening very analytically and sometimes you're listening very just viscerally and emotionally and you become acquainted with the song almost like an old friend or to continue my ill-advised sexual metaphors, like a lover, perhaps. <laughs> you become aware of the grain and, and the gradients and the feel and the peaks and valleys of the song, and you know it almost in this intimate way. Okay, I'm definitely going to stop now <laughs> before I go any further. What are some of the ways that you approach listening just for the first time? What's important to keep in mind? I try and listen without any preconceptions as though you were hearing the song in a vacuum. Mm. Again, that's not the only way to listen, but I think sometimes it's helpful to just kind of brush aside as much as possible everything you think you know about that song, about that artist, about that genre, and really try and hear it almost as if you were um, an alien encountering it on <laughs> the, the Voyager gold record that was sent out to space in the 70s yeah. without any preconceptions or biases, mm. like an isolated aural object. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. So maybe that's what we should do next is actually just sit and listen to the song. Okay, let's drop the needle. Hit playback. Hit playback. And turn into an alien. Take it away, Leonard. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord but you don't really care for music do you it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall the major lift the baffled king composing
So just first reactions to that. Free associate with me here for a second. What do you feel listening to the first verse and chorus of that song? The first thing that comes to mind is obviously I'm deeply exposed to this song and embarrassingly had never heard the original. So the first thing that happens is that even in trying to listen to it as its own separate form, all I can hear is, of course, the Jeff Buckley version that most people are familiar with because it really popularized the song or the recent Pentatonix cover or the hundreds of times that I've heard it at a campfire. Right. So this is a hard one to separate from. But the thing that I think stuck out most for me was this sort of lackadaisical approach to the lyrics. Mm. Leonard Cohen's sense of melody is... Um, well, interpretive, maybe, <laughs> is the word to use. Sure. Building on that, I'd say one of the things that, that really strikes me in just this initial listening session, this drop-the-needle session, is what a powerful contrast there is between his sort of uh, peripatetic <laughs> interpretation of the lyrics in the verse and then this incredible kind of explosion of very gospel-like full choruses mm, in, in the mm. chorus section, in the hallelujah section. Mm. That's such a sharp contrast that when I was listening to it for the first time, it kind of like blew me out of my seat. It was yeah. it's really cool. That difference grabs your attention. It seems to be a very intentional choice, having the singular voice later awash in a massive chorus. Yeah. It says, pay attention to this. This is the central piece of the song. Yeah. Lyrically, this song is entirely beguiling to me on the first listen, and frankly, on the hundredth listen as well. Yeah, no doubt. These lyrics are, are at once incredibly specific and incredibly uh, kind of elusive in their in their true meaning. Oh, yeah, because there's deep biblical references where unless you are immensely familiar with the not most popular pieces of scripture, you would miss them. And then there's just what is sort of seemingly references to a relationship. It is a rich, poetic piece. Yeah, all of a sudden in, in that second line, we are this, this character enters who's not, it's not clear. It's second person. You don't care for music, do you? And you're like, is that, are you talking to me? <laughs> are you talking to some other character, some, some fictional character? It's very, I mean, that's not something we're going to really be able to answer. And I think that's part of the, the power of this song. Mm -hmm. Okay, so first listen, dropping the needle, a lot going on in this track. Yeah, and I would say that what we've just gone through, I think is fairly representative of how my ear works when I listen something will grab me like a bass line, I'll pay attention to the bass, and then the second time I go through, maybe I'll listen to the chords, and then the third time I go through, I'll listen to the lyrics, and then the fourth time through, I'll start to listen to the song form and how the chorus and the verse contrasts, and then eventually I'll listen back and they all start to meld together, and I can I can hear the interplay between all the pieces. Ooh, I like that. So it's like you're listening in almost like layers, like uh, like uh, a cake? <laughs> Yes, like cake, or I was going to say like sedimentary rock, um, and you're an archaeologist, but let's go with your cake metaphor. That's a lot stronger, actually, and a lot tastier. <laughs> yeah, especially like a multi-layered cake with different elements. It's, it, it tastes best when you have them all together, but sometimes you have to try them individually to get a sense of what this 
funky chocolate peanut butter raspberry cheesecake is going to taste like. Yeah, that's so true because each one has their own flavor, but then each one uh, also like combines with the others in, in in all these different permutations of flavor. Yeah. Whoa, Charlie, you just <laughs> you just knocked this out of the park with that cake line. All right. All right. Thanks. <laughs> so that's the first listen. That's dropping the needle. Yeah. And then already, I think we're hinting at the next section. We're we're already kind of racing to get there. Yes. <laughs> you and yes. I. Um, and that is what scratching the record. Yes. And this is not something that it's necessarily advisable to do to your vinyl. <laughs> yeah. Don't do this to your nice record collection, especially if it's somebody else's. Don't go to your friends or parents' records and, and start scratching them. They will not be happy with you. Yes, precisely. But but in terms of the import here, this is the idea that after you've done your drop the needle and listened again and again. Then those moments that really grab you, that get under your skin, that there's something that you, like an itch you can't quite scratch, literally try and scratch it. (laughs) Dial that back, bring the record back and just listen to that section over and over. Put it under the microscope, turn it over and, and really try and decode what is happening there. So what in the song is capturing your ear? What is that thing, to continue our metaphor, the needle jumps, you pay attention, and you just want to keep scratching it back and hearing it over and over? The chorus of this song is just so mesmerizing to me. Great. And it's something I feel, you know, that's the moment where, just to be clear, this is the part where he's singing hallelujah just over and over again. The part that I always come back to, there's something that I don't quite, understand about it and that's what makes me want to listen to it closer okay i think that's a really good cue is if there's something there that is both appealing but maybe confusing as you say or you you don't know how it's working that's the thing you got to scratch back to yeah and after listening to it a few times i think i may have put my finger on what i find so kind of mysterious and compelling about it yeah i think a lot of it has to do with the rhythm of this line Hmm. And in this case, I think it's important to to listen to the original hmm. because in covers of this song, uh, a lot of them change the rhythm of this chorus huh. in a very subtle way that might not even be noticeable if you're not looking as obsessively as we are at it. <laughs> you know, in that Pentatonix version, for instance, which yep. is currently like racking up 60 million views as we speak, they don't do exactly what Leonard Cohen does. Oh. Because Leonard Cohen sings two slightly different rhythmic versions of that word, hallelujah. So the first one is like this, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the second one is hallelujah. emphasizes a different syllable each time he emphasizes a different syllable each time and again this is like such a subtle thing that maybe doesn't matter at all and has no significance but i can't help but feel something when leonard cohen sings those rhythmic variations that i miss when pentatonics leave them out because they just sing hallelujah hallelujah they leave out the uh the first rhythm Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I love that any of these syllables could be equal candidates for emphasis. 
ha, le, lu, ya. Any one of those four could be the spot to emphasize. And as you change the emphasis, it has a different flow and sound to it. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Like radically different. And I think especially beginning the chorus on this version of that word that's very syncopated and kind of almost like staggered. I almost picture someone like almost falling down as they say it. It's very unexpected. Hallelujah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you missed the first step. A quick rhythm and then a long uh, holdout and then another statement. I don't know. It's like there's something very captivating about it to me. So, okay, this is neat. What does it all mean? Okay, well... This is the final step of listening. So we've scratched our itch <laughs> over yeah. and over again. We've listened to that that one part that stood out to us right. and tried to understand what it was that was like really captivating us. And then now we have to remix it. We have to essentially create our own version, our own maybe interpretation mm. of what that means. Um, this is, I think, the most fun part for us. Okay, so you're using remix as a metaphor. We're not literally going to cover the song and make it our own, but rather through our listening, our interpretation in some ways changes the meaning of the tune. Yes, or at least kind of brings out another latent meaning right. that is buried in this right. roiling mix of, of... Yeah, so like how a great DJ will take a breakbeat, put it over something new, a new bass line or something, and it develops a new meaning. And so here we're going to listen to something a dozen times and then start to apply our own scaffolding around it to say what it means to us. Yes. Oh, my God, Charlie. Let's just let it. We're letting it all hang out. We are mixing metaphors left and right. 50th episode. <laughs> rules are out the window. When we return, we will remix this section of Hallelujah. Beautiful. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. 
built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome back to Switched on Pop. When we left, we had gone through the liner notes of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, the who, what, why, when, and where. Or not the why, sorry. (laughs) What, where, and when. (laughs) The why we can never answer. No, never. God, no. Then we dropped the needle and listened to the song over and over again. And then we scratched the record, focusing in on those moments, those wrinkles, those sections of the song that we couldn't get out of our head for some reason. And finally, we take that record scratch section and inscribe some kind of meaning to it, some kind of interpretation. This is the remix, the final step. What does this mean? The remix. (laughs) So what does this mean in Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, these two different rhythms, these two different ways of saying hallelujah, going back and forth, back and forth? Uh, I don't know, frankly. And that should be probably a caveat that we... (laughs) append to every single one of our uh, episodes. Your guess is as good as mine, but I will nevertheless essay to construct some meaning here. What I'm hearing from you is that it's almost impossible to know the composer's intent unless they have specifically told it to us in an interview. And so this act of remix is very much an act of interpretation. Yes. And I would even go so far as to say the composer's intention may in fact be irrelevant. Oh. Tell me more. Now we're kind of getting into a uh, uh, an existential aside here, but that's perfectly <laughs> fine because, again, it's our 50th anniversary and we can do whatever we want. Yes. You know, what Roland Barthes would call the death of the author, I think, is something I ascribe to when listening to music. A composer certainly has a set of goals and intentions, as does a, a performer of, of music. Right. Uh, but what we take away from them does not always necessarily align with those goals and intentions. Right. In a way, I think we create our own meaning and the validity of our interpretations is measured in how convincingly we present it and argue for it and use and marshal evidence in support of it. Mm. That is really, I, I can't think of any other way to determine whether, you know, one meaning of a song versus another is is better or worse. That feels so appropriate given that I read that Leonard Cohen worked countless hours on this song and had multiple versions that he performed that included some verses, excluded some verses, had some new material, which has then allowed cover artists to continue to interpret the piece. And we get to do the same thing even in our own listening to just one version of it. Yes. And I wonder, in fact, coming back to this rhythmic variation of the word hallelujah in the chorus of this song, in some ways, this is what Cohen was actually trying to capture the indeterminacy and the the elusiveness of music and in some ways of the act of creation itself, of composition, of putting lyrics to paper and hands to guitars and vocal cords to vibrations, <laughs> that there's some element of control and there's some element of what, I don't know, divine inspiration, intuition, yeah. something, something, some elemental force guiding you.
So in the course of the song, Cohen gives us two ways to sing the word hallelujah. Yeah. But not only that, he gives us two harmonies to undergird this hallelujah. Mm. It's constantly going from major in the first version, in the hallelujah. That one's major. Hallelujah. Followed by the other version, hallelujah. That's minor. Hallelujah. Mm. So... Two rhythms, two harmonies, and it goes from one to the other, from one to the other, and then finally seems to to settle back in the home key of C major. So he's going back and forth musically just as he is metrically yes and so why do this why go back and forth like this why not just stick to one version of the hallelujah certainly uh, pentatonics justin timberlake a uh, hundred other cover versions of the song do just that but i i find i prefer the original especially in in light of what comes before in the verse so if we look at this mysterious verse for a second yeah i heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do ya? Mm. And then there's this fascinating uh, series of lyrics here, because he goes, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, and as he says the fourth and the fifth, the music moves to the fourth chord of the scale, and then the fifth chord of the scale. Right, right. And then following that, he says, the minor fall, we go to a minor chord, and then the major lift, we go to a major chord. Oh, and then he says the baffled king composing hallelujah. That word baffled stands out so much in this stanza. It's perfect because it, I think it, it captures something about what it's like to write a song where <laughs> you're constantly uh, feel like you did something on purpose and then you did something that you had no idea where it came from. Right. But there it is and it works perfectly and again, it's just like something you almost drew out of the, the atmosphere or the ether. <laughs> and so at first it sounds like he's in control. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. But then all of a sudden, the baffled king composing Hallelujah, hmm. who's in control really at all? Yeah, is it God's hand or is it King David in the biblical reference that he's making here? Or is it him, the composer? Is it Leonard Cohen? Yes, exactly. All these characters kind of collapse into one. And then exploding out of that admission, in a way, is this at once a very declarative and powerful statement of this age-old declaration of joy, hallelujah, yeah. and yet something a little uncertain about it. Mm. That first rhythm is not very confident. It's got that broken feel, that staggered feel. Oh, the broken hallelujah. He sings that later on. He does, exactly. The brokenness is in the rhythmic misstep of the first time he sings it. Right. It's embedded right in there. Because it's like, he's tripped, right? Hallelujah. Yeah. I fell over trying to say it. Yeah. <laughs> and then immediately after, we get the more kind of natural sounding rhythm. Hallelujah. Yeah. But it's undercut. It's on the minor chords. Exactly. Just as he's getting confidence in singing it, the music raises doubt. Yes. And then back to the major broken version. And then finally, some kind of resolution. Mm. 
in the smooth, elongated version, resolving harmonically to the original key of C major. Mm. It feels like we've finally reached some sort of stability or some kind of certainty over how this hallelujah is meant to be sung, meant to be composed. But it doesn't feel, somehow it doesn't feel that solid to me. Forcing us to continue back into more verses of exploration about faith, composition, relationship, divine intervention. Exactly, yeah. The ambiguity is always there. And I think that's kind of the central dissonance in this song that makes it such a perennially exciting composition is the fact that you're singing one of the most unqualified words of praise going back millennia. But he's singing it in this way that's always kind of undercutting that confidence, always bringing some doubt, some uncertainty into the equation. You know, I've read these lyrics and heard this song so many times, and I've heard these different narratives from, is he speaking to a lover? Is he speaking about God and David's relationship to God and the biblical narrative? There's so many readings, and I had never understood this. I think it's the third verse, and it makes so much sense now. He says, you say I took the name in vain. I don't even know the name. (laughs) I don't know the name. Kind of like he doesn't even know how to say the thing properly. Of course, he's referencing the name of God, which only, uh, I believe, the Israelites know the, the correct name of God and can say it aloud. But then he continues, he says, but if I did, well, really, what's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken. Hallelujah. You say I took the name in vain. I don't even know the name, but if I did, well, really, what's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard, the holy or the broken, hallelujah. Whoa. So the holy hallelujah and the broken hallelujah are both represented in the way that he sings the word. Yes. Yes, exactly. Ah. And so now thinking about, I'm really glad you just highlighted that line because I think that speaks to why so many different artists are able to sing this song and like bring out a seemingly a very different meaning each time. Mm. I don't think there's any consistency in the way the song has been played from, right, Cohen's original version to... John Cale's to Jeff Buckley's to Rufus Wainwright's to who else? Uh, Justin Timberlake, Pentatonix. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Right. You forgot a very important cover version, which is everybody who's ever learned to play the guitar. (laughs) Right. And every contestant on American Idol, uh, the voice (laughs) ever. Exactly. And every character in a TV or movie whose emotional exit scene has been scored to a non-diegetic cover of the song. (laughs) I think Cohen, and again, whether he was trying to do this or not, whether he was baffled or not in the process, 
has created something that is, like you said, kind of sacred and profane at once. And depending on, on how you perform it, you can bring out either side of that duality. Yeah, as much as we can make fun of the different ways that it is covered, easily learned, I think it speaks to the song's indelible nature. The lyrical content is so perfectly matched to the music that it invites so many different interpretations, both of listening and playing. It just is a brilliant composition. And there is much more to be said, which yeah. is part of the fun of this <laughs> way of listening. It kind of goes on and on and on. Yeah. But let's stop there. We've had a great four-step process of the switched-on method of listening to this song, from the liner notes to dropping the needle to scratching the record to finally just now remixing the meaning of this song. That was a lot of fun. Wow. Thanks, Charlie. A beautiful thing. And rest in power, Leonard Cohen. Absolutely. For a final act on our 50th anniversary, <laughs> I thought we could have a little banquet. <laughs> Get a caterer, maybe, I don't know, maybe like a, a magician or something. Definitely some music, maybe yeah. have a mariachi band in one corner. <laughs> uh, have some some ambient noise in, in memory of, uh, of Paulino Oliveros in another corner. <laughs> Maybe some heavy metal in, in another, and uh, and lastly to recognize our collective roots, a nice bluegrass ensemble in the in the last corner of the room. Surely, surely. And what would a anniversary celebration be without some toasts? Yes. So I have prepared a little something. Charlie, do you have anything that you want to say to everyone, everyone gathered here? Yes, I do have a toast to give at our little celebratory fiftieth episode banquet I first met Nate in a class about esoteric 15th century music he was wearing a wool blazer and a very fashionable thin linen tie but I did not think him to be as pretentious as he looked because the second time I met Nate we were both in a mildewed basement. It was probably around 2 a.m. at the peak of a college party, and he was behind the electric keyboard playing free jazz with an ensemble of musical wizards. And I was blown away, one of the three people dancing on the dance floor, because I'm not sure everybody else enjoyed this avant-garde sound. Uh, but I thought it was just, yes, utterly brilliant. His musical prowess was intimidating and inspiring, and I would seek out his band in small venues in Providence, each performance usually with the same ensemble, but under a different name. There was Metropolis, there was Spank City, there were many names. Oof, some more regrettable than others. <laughs> and in a show right around graduation, Nate and his band played a formal recital in which they made uh, free association interpretations of flying musical animations directed by our designer, Luke Harris. This was high art. Then we graduated, and I was sure Nate was off to great things. And I was very surprised that when I moved to California, 
my old bass player Andrew invited me to a jam session in his friend's apartment. And there he was. Sans tie in a newly adopted California getup, Nate was playing the banjo in the band. And in that jam session, I couldn't believe I was the one playing instead of listening and one of the three people dancing. I tried to spin all my guitar tricks to convince this group to let me stay around. <laughs> and one jam session turned into, well, about three years of playing music together. And we started to build a name for ourselves, first as Simpler Times, then as The Stowaways. We played bars around San Francisco. And just when everything was starting to click, I had to move to LA to be with my partner, Bess, and Nate had to move to New York City to be with his partner, Whitney. And so we entered into the Skype era of our romance. Due to the lag of video chat, of course, it is nearly impossible to play music together. So instead we started Switched On Pop. We spent a year producing pieces about musical listening as a way to celebrate our friendship and mutual love for deep listening. And now, two years later, we've built a whole movement with tens of thousands of supporters around the world. Thank you, Nate, for joining me on this journey. Oh my God, Charlie, I am verklempt. I am cavelling. It's a Shonda, what a, what a mess I am right now. That was beautiful, wow. Thank you, thank you. That's a really hard act to follow. But uh, let's all raise a glass. I didn't know a toast was a competition. <laughs> oh, it's all a competition, Charlie. Uh, well, first, let's just take a moment to thank all our friends and family gathered here. Uh, and, and especially big thanks to Bill, Mikey, Susan, and Pergo, to Luke Harris, to all the guests that have, have appeared on our show and all the listeners who have written to us and, and offered their interpretations yeah. of songs. It's been, in some ways, the best part of this experience and I think one probably totally unexpected to, to each of us. Definitely. But also, let's, let's raise a glass to my co-host, Charlie, uh, the consummate autodidact, the simply best person in the world, full of good cheer and endless love for those around him possessor of a brilliant musical mind and the most uh, meticulous and immaculate editor i have ever worked with thanks for making uh my writing and thinking so much better over all these years um i want to get philosophical for a moment Sorry, I know you're not supposed to do that in, a, in an anniversary toast, but, but it can't be avoided. I've been thinking a lot about our 50th anniversary here, and I wanted to, to share with you a, a quote from a book that's been very inspirational to me, very kind of foundational. Is it a Dr. Seuss book? This is, <laughs> this is a book by Christopher Small. He's an ethnomusicologist, and it's called Simply Musicking. Hmm. That is M-U-S-I-C-K-I-N-G. Great. And this is at once a very simple concept, but also one, like most things, that's very, very complex. Basically, Small proposes that we have to kind of eliminate the dichotomy between performer and listener, between composer and audience, between kind of the, the sender and receiver. Mm. Uh, in fact, we have to think about music not as this divided noun, but a constantly active verb that requires participants. 
and that everyone involved in the act of music is doing this verb, is musicking. Mm. That whatever role you have, whether you're listening, whether you're performing, whether you're setting up the piano in the concert hall, <laughs> you are musicking. Mm. That is the only way that music exists, is, is from all of us participating in it. And if you kind of eliminate some of that hierarchy, it's really exciting. I might just deploy one quote from Small here. He says, The act of musicking establishes in the place where it is happening a set of relationships, and it is in those relationships that the meaning of the act lies. Mm. And I think that's just what I want to raise a glass to today, because uh, this show uh, has cemented our relationship in, in so many ways and like yeah. and not just our relationship but in, in general I, I i listen to music as like almost a social act now and i right. and i see how music um has has a meaning within our society and has a meaning for me and for my friends and for my family and like and i start to wonder if small isn't right in that you know the meaning that i derive isn't as important as whatever anyone else is and I guess I just want to conclude by, by saying that I think when we interpret a piece of music, any music, right, yeah. from Mozart to uh, Britney Spears, whatever it is, that we kind of become part of that piece of music in some small mm. way. And, and Hallelujah. Yeah, right? And our hearing of it and our meaning of it is important. It's almost like... It's like uh, another little line of, of counterpoint added to, to the piece, in, in maybe, maybe invisible to most, but it's there. Music is only as real as we all make it. Mm. And uh, let's all drink now. It's <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful, transient, interpretative act of musicking. I love it. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Charles. And uh, next week, Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> <laughs> Number 51. Well, it gets better. Should we do some credits? Yes, we should. This episode was produced by me, Nate Sloan. And edited by Bill Lance and me, Charlie Harding. Our design, as always, is by the brilliant Luke Harris. But Luke Harris is also a phenomenal DJ, and he puts out a monthly playlist that can be found at soundcloud.com slash lukeharris, full of the music that you must be listening to it is so good yeah his monthly playlists are extraordinary that is uh on heavy rotation right now switch on pop is a proud member of the panoply network you can find more episodes of the show at switchedonpop.com you can find it on any pod catcher wherever you get your podcasts if you leave a review of our show on itunes or whatever podcatcher app you use google play etc it makes it so much easier for people to find our show. Every review just increases uh, the chance that someone else will start listening to Switched on Pop. So if you're so inclined, please just head over there and, and give us uh, as many stars as you think appropriate uh, and as many words as uh, you think we deserve. If you have other things that you want to share, please do. You can find us on Twitter at Switched on Pop or on Facebook as well. That's about it. See you uh, for your years to another 50 episodes, Charlie. Absolutely. All right. We'll be back again in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening.